Welcome everybody to the eighth episode of the STI podcast. This time we are doing the second part of the game balancing mini series. So it's uh, me, Johanna, and Arturi again. Hello. Hi. So this time we thought that we maybe try to discuss more of balancing in video games. So focus more on the video games instead of games in general. And uh, for that, I have a few topics. But before that, let's, uh, let's make a little two minutes announcement that the podcast is now on iTunes. So if you, I don't know, care about that, using an iPhone or whatever Apple thing you can use, it's on iTunes if it's easier. Uh, then it's, well, it's on the same place. As usual, we are not doing the YouTube anymore because nobody wants to see our faces. <laughs> and uh, of course, we are also on Twitter, and that is at, at STA Podcast. And if you have Twitter and you're listening to this point, that is like two minutes in, you can go there and follow us, retweet our episodes. Why not help us get more listeners? Maybe someone is interesting. Um, Okay, so I have here some things, and I would say that before we start, we should kind of put the discussion into video games can be PvE and PvP. So PvE being player versus environment, that's more of a single player game or a co-op game or anyway, something that you play against an let's say the computer or enemies controlled by the artificial intelligence of the game. PvP is of player versus player and you're playing against other people. So the experience is completely different and the balancing and the approach is going to be completely different. So maybe let's start with a question to both of you. PvE, PvP in a game that has both and they are kind of connected to each other. Which one do you think should be prioritized in a general well, discussion of, I want to sell this game or I want this game to be liked, but as many people as possible. And I, okay, just the example I have in mind is uh, this MMORPG or shared world shooters that are now, or whatever they are called, Destiny Division or World of Warcraft or what else? Guild Wars. Yeah, yeah, lots of examples. Yeah, so. Do you, do you have anything smart to say, Juan? Um, nothing smart, only uh, only something that actually was a lot used uh, in our last podcast or last episode, which is it depends. Uh, because I guess it really depends on what you, what you want your game's selling point to be. If you want it to yeah. be a fair experience in player versus player uh, combat, and it has some sort of uh, extra, let, let's call it extra, uh, single player or uh, group content against the computer, then you probably want to heavily focus on the player versus player balancing. But if, on the other like. hand, player versus player is just a, you know, something that you added because it's you you should have it or it makes makes it sort of more sellable then you should obviously um concentrate on the pve content 
Yeah, I mean, like as with basically everything, it, it all starts with the question, what do you actually want out of the game? Like, yeah. Is your focus going to be on making a competitive like tournament experience that an eSport or is it the single player content and what what do you want? Well, it's kind of uh, in this case, uh, let's say the division. I don't know if both. Well, do you want to play it a bit? I don't know if Arthur, you played the division oh, yeah, at all. I didn't know. Okay, but so there is you go shoot AI enemy in the PvE, you get loot and you can use the loot in the PvP side of the game where you have both AI enemy and players at the same time in the same place. Yeah, and with basically the same mechanics, right? Yes, so, so yeah, you game, have to balance the same, yeah. Every, like, okay, of course, the type of damage you're going to do is going to be scaled differently. But you have to balance everything in the game to both at the same time. That's actually and, an, a nice uh, example in the sense because that's not, I mean, the game has a purely PvE part, but the PvP part isn't purely PvP because there's, like you mentioned, there's uh, also some AI controlled characters in the dark zone. So yeah. many games, many games of these um, sort of mixed things in between, which I, I guess sort of makes it even a bigger hassle than so, just one or the other. Or I'm, so I'm interested. Do, does the division do anything to specifically balance the PVP stuff? Like does it scale your damage or does it match make, match make based on player level or so the the point is that of course the damage is scaled differently, but uh, how the mechanic of the game that doesn't change, and also the matchmaking yeah. is not a matchmaking because you are just sharing uh, an area with other people. They it's... are divided by your yeah. loot that you have, like your let's say gear score, like whatever you own. It's an RPG type of thing, so your oh, level. There. There, there is sort of like this passive um, kind of um, division to levels because if you go to the higher levels, you might get so so badly hurt, or you, you might get beaten so so much that you want to go to the easier ones. So there's no like right. uh, you don't press a button and wait for the game to assign you to you know some some server with uh, smaller level players. But yeah, rather, yeah, you, you just you just decide what. Yeah. sort of challenge you want out of the level you get, uh, yeah. area you go to. So it's technically possible for someone really high up to just go stomp on the noobs in the low gear area. Well, you cannot do that directly in the sense that you are limited to your level around your level. So uh, okay, when so... you reach the maximum level, let's say, but then you that doesn't mean that you are the, the strongest because you have maximum level stuff that you can build very badly, and then you are much worse. So at that point, it becomes a balancing of every kind of item you can have in the game, and they combine together. So it's uh, the same idea that an MMORPG can have, where Warcraft is completely separates PvP and PvE, but the division puts them together at a certain point. So here it goes. I think um, I mean this is uh, probably something that anyone has anyone who has ever encountered a situation where you have multiple variables and you sort of you're trying to look for something you you know what you're looking for but you don't know 
how can you get it from from fine-tuning the variables so uh, very quickly it sort of becomes an uncontrollable problem if you have I don't know let's say 10 variables or even more um, so maybe with three you can sort of fiddle out with uh, three parameters three parameters so that's you can find the optimal solution but once it grows it becomes so much more difficult and these parameters in this sense this sense would be well all the skills or the power levels of the skills or or all the passive talents wh yeah, whatever the, you have the build you have yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Wh whatever, whatever sort of are the building blocks of a character um and in this sense if you have if you have the same skills and same equipment for example um in the pvp environment and the pve environment it becomes a very difficult uh problem to solve because you want to have you don't actually want to have one thing you want to have two things which is that all characters are balanced in both of the things um which means you have crap loads of parameters and then you want uh to get two things out of those parameters you might be able yeah. to get sort of a fair pvp experience easier than both or fair pve than both but it's 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 uh such a difficult problem that sometimes games actually uh try to separate it for example like yeah like does. i've i've not personally played very many games that sort sort of mix the pve and pvp content like that and uh, the ones i have played have usually felt I don't know. I just they haven't seemed to work as <laughs> as well as I I would have liked. Uh, so it's I think it's definitely a very difficult thing to balance. If you, I guess you'd you'd want both sorts of. I guess you'd want the uh, AI NPCs working pretty close in mechanics to any player, so that you've got sort of a smaller difference between a pve and a pvp encounter like uh, if your npcs have broadly the same mechanics attached as any human pvp player then yeah. the balancing of that is just going to be sort of fewer variables but it's that's probably it's, one of the harder things yeah to do. it's very difficult yeah so but, of course because when you're then balancing separately you have you want the in the pve part the player to feel really powerful in a way but keeping depends. the the keeping the content hard enough but they i mean the computer can always win of course so you have to make of course fake, it's really fake, easy to yeah so you have to fake yeah. the hard uh, level very yeah, like very carefully making an ai that's completely impossible to beat is super simple it's like if it no if it always has all of the information about where you are and it has super fast speed at instantly headshotting you yeah it's gonna win every time that's not yeah. hard as <laughs> hard as making ai that's that's believably stupid enough for yeah. the player to win basically so, uh ai yeah. is uh, point is not to be a good sort of not not to be a good player but rather be a good opponent yeah and that also depends on the specific type of pve experience you want like um if you're making a horror game 
you probably don't want the AI monsters to immediately, even if they can see the player and all of that, you probably don't want them to actually catch the player because getting caught and killed and having to restart completely breaks the mood of horror and tension and dread you're building up in a horror game. Uh, yeah. Which is why at least, you know, at least um, frictional games uses in. I'm pretty sure it was Amnesia: The Dark Descent. At least they've got their monster AI such that if the player is hiding from them and the monster technically knows where they are, they're programmed to just come up real close to the player, not look at them, and then just wander off. So the player gets the hiding in a corner, shaking bit and seeing the monster right next to them and then the euphoria of having the monster wander off and then if the player makes a mistake like comes out of the cover of everything then the monster is gonna yeah yeah then the monster is going to but if the player like plays properly the monster is not going to find them but they're going to always come really close to finding them in order to heighten the tension and sort of keep the dread alive like yeah, one of, yeah, one of the worst bits you could do in a horror game, in my opinion, and apparently also in the opinion of frictional games, is that is to you know kill the player and have them retry because that loses all of the novelty of the situation and the tension and everything is just gone. Yeah, basically, uh, you lose the it's it's the fear of the unknown in this sense. You don't know what the monster is going to do to you, which is sort of uh, can be very frightening if the mood is correct, but then. Once you know that uh, what the monster is going to do to you is going to show a screen which has restart or exit, and it's that's not very frightening, at least not in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. yeah, and and then you lose the sense of uh, I'm not scared next time because yeah, I'm gonna wait. The monster is gonna do this. If I die, I just start again. Yeah, yeah. So it becomes um, some some sort of uh, I don't know arcade game where you die multiple times and then sort of just bash yeah. your head head in until you beat the beat the problem somehow. Yeah, and yeah. this is because uh, uh, Arturi provided some notes and there there was some something about the balancing of game what you look for. So of of course you will the first, that's always the first question what are you looking for? So yeah. we I have written down let's see it's a Directly from what we are speaking now, experience is the most important part uh, in a PvE-oriented game, single player or op yeah. or whatever. Probably, so you yeah. want the player to feel the game. Yeah, it, that doesn't need to be balanced. Uh, well, in a, well, let's say in a in a power, uh, the player can be extremely powerful as long as that is the experience you want to give them. Yeah, yeah. If you want the player to feel really powerful and cool, then you can. You don't necessarily need to have, but you don't need to have parity between the player and it and the enemies. But you do have to balance the the disparity in power, right? Yeah, you, you balance or, for the experience, yeah. not for being yeah. fair. Yeah, and if if you want to make someone feel really powerful you don't want them to be powerful all the time because then it just yeah. becomes routine and they don't feel powerful you, you want them to feel not powerful and weak at times in order for them to really feel powerful when they are because if you're uh, yeah. all, always uh, 
omnipowerful, uh, all-powerful, all-knowing, uh, then very soon the game becomes uh, pressing buttons. So yeah, it's, not, not, it's, yeah, it's too easy. Yeah, it's what it's what they call um, uh, the law of diminishing returns. It's the it's the same principle as in like screenwriting. You don't want to have the sort of question or challenge uh, the characters in your film or whatever are facing to repeat over and over again. If the question in every scene is, does the main character survive this? And then, then they do. And then the next scene is, oh, do they survive this? <laughs> and they do. Then that's just like one or two repetitions might go well. But if it's just, do they survive this? Yep, they did again. Time after time again, it's going to be boring. Yeah, you expect what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And and that is kind of uh, what you can you have to because it's uh, very easy in a way for a single player game to be repetitive because that's the thing you can expect by the uh, artificial intelligence of the game because of course it's limited what they the enemy think. So you have to create yeah. the situation to compare to some real person. They are gonna always think in a different way that you don't expect. Yeah, one actually interesting um, sort of sideline or uh, somehow related to this topic is is balancing boss fights and balancing, let's say, PvP combat. Because if we think of the um, very traditional boss fight from World of Warcraft, for example, I have. Not not much, but little experience. I used to play it uh, ten years ago. Um, boss fights, at least uh, during that uh, time, where I am especially talking about the raid boss fights. Uh, that's a completely different environment compared to player versus player, uh, for example, arenas, where there's uh, either one versus one or two versus two or five versus five. I think um, the boss fights are probably uh, if you're a damage dealer, you stand where you stand until you actually have to move, until some mechanic of the boss forces you to move. For example, he's going to shoot a huge fireball where to, to some random places, or he's going to swipe everything in front of him, or fly, and you know all, all sorts of these um, area control uh, mechanics that the boss sometimes does as part of his uh, skill rotations. Uh, here, the point is basically do as, ma as much damage as you can and only move when necessary. Uh, whereas in player versus player, the movement because becomes one of the biggest uh, biggest ways to win and to gain an upper hand. You know, mo moving out of the sight or out of line uh, of the enemy's skills, or maneuvering in in some other way that your skills are more efficient against them. And so, so basically, player versus player. Combat is sometimes very movement-based, whereas in player versus environment, you can very easily uh, just co-op with, just uh, go on with pressing or using your best skills or using the damage dealing skills. For yeah, because the boss and another player, I mean, the boss and you are doing different thing in the fight, while yeah. other player and you, you're doing exactly the same thing. Yeah, that's yeah. probably. A, also a good example of why you want to make AI opponents sort of dumb and predictable. When players get smacked with a skill or with an ability they didn't predict, they didn't know was going to come out, or 
they just got surprised, didn't know the boss was capable of that, or the boss suddenly moves uh, unexpectedly and kills a player or whatever. Uh, people very often feel it's you know unfair and uh, um, you know if it's if if they die unpredictably, they go that's unfair. It's, yeah. it's a natural reaction. It it did something you couldn't predict. It feels arbitrary. It, it feels unfair. You you couldn't have predicted it, and then you died because the boss did something that might have been very very intricately and smartly coded AI, but which the players couldn't predict because they don't see the logic behind it, and then it feels bad to play. This actually also ties into interestingly. Um... Uh, to animations. So balancing a game can be also about animations because you want to have uh, good signaling. When when the boss is going to hit with a huge hammer on the ground, you want there to be at least, I don't know, half a second or a second or it may even maybe longer. The, the stronger or the bigger the damage is going to be, the longer you want the signaling even to be, which is basically in this sense, or in this case, uh, raising the hammer very high and then maybe keeping it up there for a while and then hitting it down and, and sort of insta-killing everyone who's under it. So in this sense, yeah. balancing is also tied to uh, the readability of, of the animations that the enemy does. So you're yeah, yeah. basically thinking about Dark Souls, probably? Well, where, I mean, any, yeah, any sort any of game. In, in general, that is a game that is uh, well-balanced on the fact that the game is unfair somehow in the boss fight at the beginning because you have to learn them. And then you know what happens. Yeah, or well, not unfair, but sort of um, like we it, talked last time, complex. Yeah, yeah, complex. No, not unfair, but in, in the, what, the, what we were speaking just before that. Then the bosses do something that you don't expect, but you expect that that might happen in that way. It's like part yeah. of the game to be surprised, learn, and then continue. Mm. Yeah, but even in Dark Souls, the <coughs> bosses do... Uh, most of the time they do signal and they do telegraph their movements or attacks pretty well. So technically, well, I'm, I'm not saying Dark Souls is perfect. No, I, I definitely am not saying Dark Souls is perf perfect. As anyone, <laughs> as anyone who's, who's heard me yep. play uh, knows. But um, they do a pretty good job of signaling and telegraphing boss moves and stuff to the player. So if you're looking at the boss, you and they are going to do an attack, you probably can identify that it's an attack. You can identify that you should probably dodge somewhere, even if you're not familiar of, with that specific attack. Yeah, yeah. Then this... It's, go ahead. Yeah, uh, it, it just becomes a matter of you know identifying specific attacks, knowing the optimal direction to dodge, or whether you can parry it, and the rhythm with which they continue their combo or not, and all that stuff you learn while you're trying to defeat the boss. But in, but they mostly are pretty fair, even even the first time. Yeah, um, sort of one one way to um, think about this is, is um, I mean, sometimes it can be a very efficient tool for the game designer or the animator or, or them uh, to make two kinds of attacks which look somehow similar, but there are differences. And for example, the first attack is a very strong one, which deals a lot of damage, and the second one is not that bad, but they have slightly uh, similar 
um, animations. You want them to be different enough that you can actually notice it. So you can think of the, for example, the sil silhouette of the of the enemy who is attacking. If the silhouette looks the same in the animation, um, then you should probably change them if they are completely different. But sometimes, if you have um, almost the same, but just slightly different animations, uh, which do slightly different things, then it can be a fun challenge as well. But obviously, they should be yeah. tested like everything else as well. And again, depending on what sorts of play you want out of your game. If you're making yeah, a Dark yeah. Souls where the point is dying and that dying and failing uh, helps you learn and overcome the challenges and it's just about basically about persistence, then it's okay probably to build those sorts of uh, semi-trap things for the player to figure out and sort of like understand and learn while they fail. But if you're making a game where, you know, you it's just about Twitch reactions and being fast and good, mm. then it's, you know, it's a different thing entirely. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> so it's... basically, uh, this is something that goes like, uh, how hard do you make a game? And of course, that depends on uh, who you're targeting. And uh, Yeah, not even but... how hard, just uh, hard in what way? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was the the thing. If uh, in, in a puzzle game, uh, you can be really hard, that is frustrating. But you have to kind of the whole game is to become so good that then you can do it. Or then it's yeah. hard enough that the game it's more like going through the levels without making too much mistake. But yeah, they are not every single one is not that difficult. Yeah. Also in a puzzle game, though, you want to balance the difficulty curve. Puzzle games are probably one of the better examples of games where you absolutely need to nail the difficulty curve of the game. You need to have a steady progression of difficulty in your puzzles. You need to make the puzzles teach the player the mechanics, and you make need to make the player realize and have revelations about the logic behind the mechanics in a sort of natural way without overloading the player with tons and tons of steps for a puzzle very early on, because that's when you get players who just get frustrated, don't like it, and quit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, basically, one, one very good way is to have a small library of basic pu puzzles, like uh, five to 10 basic puzzles, and then try to find combinations of these. So first, uh, on the first level, only use the first two or something like this. On the second level, you can introduce a new one. On the or third just one, use one. Hmm? Or just use one at the start. No, yeah, yeah. Just use one and use a repetition. And then the shorter the level, the more you can uh, repeat the same same puzzle uh, to yeah. hammer it in their head that this is how it works. And then slowly you can introduce completely new ones or uh, introduce uh, combinations of two or two or more. Yeah, your yeah, and ultimately you're going to have pretty simple basic mechanics that interact very in, so interact based on a very solid core logic. So you can have moments yeah. where the player goes, "Oh yeah, that if I do this with this mechanic, that influences this with the other mechanic," and gets yeah, the sort yeah. of aha, hey, holy shit, yeah. I figured it out moment, which is yeah. basically I'm, the point I'm of puzzle games. 
yeah, I'm a genius. I'm a genius. I figured it out. So it's now I, I have a question. Uh, what about uh, if you have a certain mechanic that you want to build, or mechanics, let's say one, to build the game, this puzzle game? So to, how would you do it? Would you start from very complicated idea and try to simple it down to teach the complicated one? Or would you start from a very simple one that is the core of your mechanic and try to make that one harder through the game? What would, how do, would you approach the problem? Uh, the problem of starting to design the game or the problem of building yeah, the levels? Like design the, the puzzle where that this level or game is based on. Well, mm-hmm. um, I guess it sort of really depends on which, which do you come up with. If you come up with an extremely cool but difficult sort of puzzle, then probably you want to dumb it down if you don't already have these uh, easier uh, or rather smaller uh, pieces of the puzzle. But if you come up with, a, with an extremely nice sort of, I don't know, let's say reflecting light with some sort of uh, object, it can be a piece of a puzzle which you can use. Or uh, jumping is already a piece of a puzzle. Jumping up or jumping down or jumping forward or um, or um, throwing objects. Uh, if you already have these, these are pretty sort of normal and unusual and general. Almost any sort of game, whether it's 2D or 3D, can already use these. Um, so I think it's... Well, I, I started uh, saying that whichever you come up with is probably the direction where you want to backtrack from or go forwards from. But actually, since these very small uh, pieces are so easy to come up with, even just like this, um, even if you come up with a difficult idea, it's probably quite easy to break it into pieces. Yeah. Well, I, I broadly agree, yeah. I've uh, got limited experience working on like hobby projects with puzzle elements and all of those have been built from just sorts of very very basic simple mechanics which i've got like three or four of which then interact with in interesting ways and then just you know building levels based on teaching the player uh one mechanic at a time and then combining them and then trapping them somewhere where they need to realize uh, a logical you know, progression of the stuff they've already learned and so on. Okay, yeah, I guess, this, yeah, I, I, yeah, I guess this, I guess this relates to overall to anything. Uh, it's usually easier to come up with complicated things from uh, small and simple parts than to understand uh, from which simple parts a complicated thing is built up. Yeah, that's true. It's that this came to my mind if I think about the witness. I don't know if anybody played that. No, I I no, watched. I didn't, I didn't know. Okay, so basically the the whole game, besides being like really nice visually, is uh, based on drawing lines into certain, like going from point A to point B with a line, and the mechanic of this changes like uh, you cannot go through certain part of the, let's say, not level, but board, or you cannot cross different lines and all. And this, there are like several variations of the same, go from here to here with a line. And this is something I would be really 
interesting to know. Like, do you come out and say, like, hey, we want to make a game. Let's try to to see. Okay, we have we go from here. We are with a line. Let's change it as much as possible to make it interesting. Or do you have other mechanics that you came out and then you adapt it to your basic idea? That's extremely probably you know could be any of those. You could, yeah, you could, you could figure out a very cool puzzle on your own that implements a board and drawing a line and some you know restrictions on where you can draw the line and then you just start from there and uh, take it apart into the smallest pieces you can and then you figure you know invent more pieces and then combine them to you know form more and more puzzles or or you could just you know start with how about make it making a line and then coming up with all the restrictions and rules and stuff or while doing one of those things you actually accidentally encounter something that's a lot more interesting or cooler or more fun and then you ditch the original idea then and, and go into a completely different direction. Yeah, yeah, or or just you started making a game with a board and something else and then you figure and that's just not going anywhere and uh, you've drawn a line and go, oh, hey, that might actually work and then you just yeah. completely rework the entire thing. So it's very difficult to, in this sense, analyze or, or try to analyze without any information from the developers, how did they come up with some? Yeah, of course. How was the game made, or what's their original idea? Because sometimes, some rare times, you can actually uh, find from the internet uh, the um, the original sort of seed of the game. And yeah, I should you... look for those. Yeah, and then uh, you've got completely different types of puzzle games from the Witness, like the Mist series, which is perfect and extremely great, and something and, uh, like. Something like Riven absolutely could not have been made by just figuring out a simple mechanic and then extrapolating from that. It's just a massive, massive, complicated thing of individual puzzles that are spread out, and it's great. Everyone. And that game is really, really difficult. So it's balanced to be a difficult game. Well, not difficult, but it's uh, well, it's somehow difficult, but it's. Depending on how you think, maybe also. I'm not sure Riven was made during a time where game balance was much of an issue. I think they just made it. Okay. Uh, though they did, they did. I know they definitely tested Mist uh, with actually a pretty neat testing mechanic. They had uh, like two people playing the game at the same time so that they could really get into what they were thinking because the two people were talking to each other and going through their thinking and then they just observed them play and uh, could just could figure out what they were thinking and why they were getting stuck in some places and and could you know adjust the game based on the playtesters thinking in a way you just cannot do if you're playing alone and you know, if you if you just have one tester looking at yeah, the game that's really and being completely quiet. Yeah, just look at the screen and start swearing and didn't really know what happened. Uh, yeah, and then you're just like, well, uh, I guess that part was annoying. Why? I don't know. Yeah. I think there's uh, some sort of, um, there has to be some sort of art or magic to uh, balancing puzzle games. I, I mean, I mean, uh, like these very 
Well, the, the, um, the ones that need actually lots of work for you as a player, something that you have to experiment a lot and spend time with because yeah. many of the problems people encounter in their normal lives are, is, is um, at least in some professions, it's, it's a lot about solving problems. And if you want to make an entertainment, a piece of entertainment or a piece of media that is all about solving difficult problems, then you really have to get it right or otherwise it's just going to be not something that anyone wants to play because they already yeah. do that. Uh, there, there are, you know, I, I think I've watched like three or four GDC talks about puzzle, puzzle design and basically all of them had their own varying methods of figuring out how difficult a single puzzle is, where various methodologies of uh, counting different bits of like how many, how many steps does it take to get through this puzzle and how much mm. information do you need previously and how much new information are you presented with and how much uh, information do you need to sort of uh, you know, intuit during it and how long ago was the previously known information you know presented to the player and there it's just so so many things you need to consider when making a single puzzle to yeah. figure out how difficult it is and then you have players who just think completely differently and don't remember or don't don't realize a particular mechanic or it's really really difficult just a quick sideline uh, one of the more um let's call it interesting uh, games puzzle games that i've ever seen is is this about basically debugging code debugging uh, assembly code I don't remember the name of the game. Shenzhenaya? Uh, possibly. Uh, it's in good old games. It's a, it's a, um, the interface is basically text, black, black uh, screen and white text. And right, then then that's, that's not, yeah. Shenzhenaya is a Zachtronics game about uh, making devices and, you know, coding the assembly code in, in the different chips and stuff and trying to make uh, cheap uh, electronics that work the way they're supposed to. It's really, really cool. <laughs> and there's a real, a real life China simulation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I mean, it's called Shenzhen, so. <laughs> yep. Yes. Uh, I think the game that I mentioned, um, it's, it's by this developer who has made uh, other puzzle games related to natural sciences. So, one about chemistry and one about, I think, physics. This just, this just really <laughs> sounds like Zachtronics games because he made uh, Space Chem, which is about chemistry. Uh, mm. Yeah, the... yeah I, think, I, think it's, I think it's the same one. I think it's the same one. Maybe, mm. I, um, maybe I remember the programming game uh, wrongly. But or, it's an, or it's an earlier game of his with the uh, same sort of theme that I haven't heard of. It could be either. Yeah. So the, from here is uh, how do you like how would you know that the balancing of your game is good? And we are still speaking about uh, single player or PVE experiences. We focus on puzzle game because probably those are like the balancing uh, nightmare. This, yeah, it's really the hardest. Uh, how do you know that the, your balancing is good? It's how many people finish your game, uh, the rate that that the people are like a score that people are giving to your game, or 
the discussion online or well uh testing testing yeah of course after new people playing when you have your game is out how do you know that you actually reached your goal i well, think that depends i think the hopefully the balancing should have already happened i mean if you release new patches then you have to uh balance it you might have to balance it again yeah of course the balancing is done you just want to know like how would you know that your balancing it's good you should probably you know optimally have some sorts of metrics in place in the game that yeah. let you know how far players have played and if they if they bought stuck somewhere and you know how you, how many people got through if you so can basically the sorts of the same sorts of metrics you're going to use when playtesting before release you've got tons and tons of people playing in the game and you figure out how much time they're taking and who's getting how far and how many how many people have finished the game and where did the guys who didn't finish get stuck and so on yeah so basically the more data you can gather so the better because i guess that's the only way uh, you can't really i mean you can make statistical studies of people's um written opinions but that's uh that's probably not something very many game developers do because that's yeah yeah that's uh, and also or, you know written written reviews or you know reddit threads and twitter arguments and steam reviews and all of that is just only the people who are the most invested are going to make those so the people who absolutely yeah. loved it or the people who absolutely hated it and that's going to skew your statistics of course it's the just, data is the only thing that actually tells yeah, you yeah yeah and but, and it's very difficult to get sort of you know uh not subjective data and not skewed data from people's voluntarily given opinions i mean sometimes if you have a large uh enough enough of uh even these skewed um opinions or this kind of this kind of um very subjective or very extreme um opinions or data points even from that you can sometimes glean very uh very trustable or very uh, very true information but it's still yeah it needs a big big amount of data and it's still uh obviously worse than than having implemented some sort of data ca gathering system in your uh, game For example if you have 10 levels then finding out which levels are the most played uh, or which take the longest time which take the shortest time um, at which points in the game did the players spend most time and so on so you would say that a good balanced a well-balanced game is a game well then then depends again on the target but most of the people that buy that game knowing what they are buying finish the game or don't get stuck in certain point then the game is well balanced that mm. could probably um, most of the people buying the game finishing the game is probably a, an impossible target since you know i think the statistics say that very very actually disappointingly low percentages of people finish the games they start yeah in general so it's you know i think uh, more useful to 
look at uh, the times people spend in certain sections of the game, which which will give you better information about whether they got stuck or not, or if they quit. Okay. They just dropped it. Yeah. Yeah, so if, if it's yeah. if the data is uh, like closer to th this kind of data where it shows which uh, levels are the most played or the least played, or which positions are the most played or least placed, least uh, played, you want the I, I guess you're in balance if you have essentially uniformly random data. So if you don't have any uh, peaks in some levels, which means yeah. this level is the least played, or that position is the one where they spend the most time. Or everybody got, get to this level and then 5% only continue. Yeah. 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 And uh, here is uh, it's another question. Uh, this is just, uh, of course, matter of opinion. But uh, would you, prepare, or let's say that you make a game and you want to make it rather hard. Let's say this uh, uh, Cuphead, extremely beautiful game, music, graphic, it's really nice, this uh, old style cartoon kind of style. It's really, really a difficult uh, 2D action platformer action game. I don't really know the the definition, but it's really difficult. So very few people will get to the end. Would And they balance for that. That was the point of the game. But w would you think it's a good or bad to put an easy mode in your game, maybe six months after the game is out, so that actually people that don't have the time or the will to really learn how to play the game, they can just go easily through the whole game and experience it. Um, if it doesn't make your game worse, I mean, if, if the game is still yeah. fun to play, then I, I guess why not? If you have the time yeah. and the possibility, then that's, sure. That's also entirely about communication, right? If you're, if if the designer's intention is to make the game very difficult, and uh, being difficult is an integral part of the game, then just slapping the player in the face with a like a difficulty options menu with uh, a, a baby level and a real person level is going to be both annoying and pretty offensive. And besides the point, if the game's supposed to be difficult, like let's say Cuphead or Dark Souls, then uh, the then you could you know offer the player in the options an option to make it easier with the caveat that this is not the way it's sort of designed to be played and you're probably going to miss the point a bit but you know if it's if it's a single player game then and you really really want to play an easier game that's just because of some other parts of the experience then why not okay so it will not it, be it, a it problem hurt. for you basically yeah yeah i mean if it's sort of done well and as Arthur said, uh, communication. If, I mean, I, I guess you should sort of, because this again brings the, uh, makes the balancing rear its head again, because if, if you have multiple difficulties, it means you have to balance the game multiple times. So... Um, no, no, this was just, uh, you balance for the hard difficulty. The easy mode uh, is just there. It okay, completely well, ruins your balance. That's the whole point. It's easier than it should. It's not made to be easy. It's made to okay, be hard. Well, you just make it easy so people can play it and just enjoy the graphic and the music. Yeah, yeah I mean, just, so... that was just a, is it, what would you think about your game being like that? 
because I would not have I'm any sure. problem. I mean, you enjoy it uh, the way you want. If you don't want to enjoy it the way I want you to enjoy it, it's yeah, not going to be the same. Yeah. So just communicate that uh, this this is not the intended intended experience, and it might be worse than uh, the other one. But go ahead. Yeah, but go ahead if you want to. Like, I mean, it's it's clear there are people who just cannot for whatever reason play something that's difficult maybe they just you know uh, maybe they have you know disabilities or they don't have the time to put into it and just want to experience the story and the music and the graphics or maybe they just don't want to play anything difficult that's you know yeah it doesn't hurt anyone else yeah yeah that was the so here we go from maybe a little bit from the experience part that is mostly what you're balancing in a single player game or in a co-op game is you just want the player to feel good feel what you want them to feel in the game horror game action yeah. game whatever but then you go to pvp so and let's say that we are separating the two things at this point otherwise it's a complete mess and we are gonna go for hours and never yeah. get anywhere <laughs> yeah too many so problems pvp is more about the competition it might be or it might be about making a spectator sport, which yes, you know. But then you need, they the, might comp- be they need the competition at the same time. Yeah, but so you have to uh, start from that. Yeah, but if you basically, uh, there is the opinion that perfectly balanced and uh, entirely, you know, entirely one hundred percent skill based and perfectly balanced, both teams equal uh, games are poorer spectator sports than something that's got mechanics in place to destabilize the balance and to make it uh, and to make sure that it's you know uh, as close as possible <laughs> at all times while still letting the better team win so I'm we not don't, sure you don't I want to have agree. you don't want to have something that is completely you, I choose this one I mean but you want uh, something that can happen and change yeah, I mean, there are you know uh, rocket league for example <laughs> i know you yeah. have favorite that's uh, <laughs> that's that's entirely symmetrical right yeah. yeah it's yeah it's it's got what it's basically got the easiest way to completely balance a competitive game that can be you know balanced there are no feedback loops there are you know there it's completely symmetrical both sides at the start of the game have an exactly equal uh chance to win based on their skills right yeah 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 there's um, nothing that affects the gameplay as the game goes on yeah and having watched some pro rocket league matches it's also pretty not exciting to follow you know, uh, match teams. It's pretty fun to watch pro matches because they do some in- incredible things. Yeah, yeah. And sort of the more experience you get it in, uh, the more fun it is to watch. Yeah, but I would argue that uh, that's mostly because Rocket League matches are pretty. Uh, they are pretty short. Yeah, yeah short than five minutes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you, if you've got uh, like a longer form match, like let's say. My favorite competitive esports, Counter Strike, um, which you know the matches can, if you if you don't go for overtime, last up to ninety minutes. 
if Counter Strike were constantly every single round starting from a perfectly equal position on both sides, where every single round played, you know, pretty much the same as the previous round, except for maybe different tactics and, you know, outcomes. I don't think it could, you know, manage being a 90, potentially 90 plus minute game and still maintain good viewership levels. You have to adapt uh, your tactic of how the game, yeah, because uh, basically if you're winning a lot, it's easier for you to be in a dominant position, but it's not impossible yeah. for the other team to play better than you and win. Yeah, but I mean, it, it's always, if, if you make a completely, you know, symmetrical game where, you know, both sides every round or after each goal uh, have an equal chance to win the next round or the next, you know, score the next goal uh, with the same tools and the same everything as the previous round, I feel that would become a bit stale if it drags on for too long. Which yeah, is why it gets it would, boring. It, yeah, it would basically become sort of if you have if you have a ninety minute round of Rocket League, you have uh, hundred and twenty versus hundred and twenty one goal. Yeah, and yeah, so or or even if the, even if it's like let's say football, you've got yeah. how many how many minutes in a fo football it's match? Ninety minutes. Um, ninety minutes, and it's like uh, maybe two to one, one to zero. Yeah. Because most of the time people. nothing happens. Yeah, in, but in the uh, in football, sort of the bigger or or rather the interest might come for. Um, I mean, I, I very rarely watch football sometimes, and what I find interesting is sort of um, trying to see uh, what tactics they're going to use next and and see how yeah. they form up. Sort of because they have so yeah. many players, there's so many moving parts. That's sort of the pretty much the only interesting thing in the game. Yeah, and that probably, I would argue, uh, highly depends on a sort of largely, like, far, you know, widely spread cultural knowledge of how football works and yeah, how you're so. having the, basically, the even the layman know something about the tactics and so on. You, of course, having played football, know probably way more about the potential tactics and so on than I do as a as an ice hockey player. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I for a completely new game, a video game, I don't think the same sorts of format would work as a spectator sport at all. Yeah, I think um, going back to the thing where sort of completely symmetrical teams and um, sometimes something slightly unbalanced or unfair not necessarily unbalanced, but something um, something unexpected uh, happening. I think good example of this is is in MOBAs, uh, the for example Dota or uh, Heroes of the Storm. Uh, the the special skills or the ultimate skills uh, they are almost all of them are somehow you might call them overpowered in the sense that they are extremely strong and they can completely swing. Um, for example, if two heroes use their uh, ultimate skills at the same time and they have good synergy uh, from the same same side, heroes, uh, it could completely just destroy the enemy team at that just that second. It could be the swing, the big swing. Yeah. But, but it's still sort of um, it is very unsymmetrical because the, all the heroes are unique and they have unique skills, although sometimes they might be similar. Yeah. 
but it's still this this somehow um creates more interesting viewing experience because especially if you know more about it if you don't know anything then it's probably just chaos and colors it's basically just a chaos of different effects yeah. i've tried to watch some league of legend matches and i haven't had any idea what's going on yeah but once you know what the heroes are capable of and especially um what's the synergy between two or three or even a team full of heroes it can become extremely interesting because you know that uh, this skill should be used at this position and this skill shouldn't be used if that was done, uh, but only if, and then so on. There, there come so many yeah. different kind of things uh, to the bread and butter leveling up when the when all the heroes meet up and they have these extremely power powerful uh, skills which they can um, use together to create an even even larger swing. It, it's I th- I agree. It becomes more interesting. Yeah. And uh, or uh, I, I just want to gush about Counter Strike yeah. a bit. Uh, like you've you've got the uh, money economic sort of meta strategy meta game on the on the background, right? You yeah. start the game basic exactly equal. It's asymmetric, but it's going to flip at half halfway through the match. So both sides play the play both sides, and you know that way the side the different starting sides are basically balanced. There are not not quite, but that's beside the point. And when you win, you get more money than the people who lost. Uh, essentially creating uh, something we've, we talked about previously, previously a positive feedback loop. When you win, you get more money than the people who lost, which enables you to buy better equipment than the people who lost, which enables you to win the next round more easily. And, you know, that makes the small victories at the start more exciting because they're sort of worth more because you get you know a decided advantage by winning but of course that would be boring and would alone lead to just a complete you know a steamroll experience where the first round decide the entire game because the other team has better gear and can just stomp the other team which yeah. is why you've got uh um, a rising loss bonus. That's, uh, a team that's, that's on a loss streak will get more money for each loss until they reach the cap of, you know, lost money, which creates a sort of a negative feedback loop inside the larger positive feedback loop that keeps the teams a bit closer. Yeah, and then, yeah. and that yeah. builds up to an, a possibility of having that swing moment because winning constantly you get the more powerful weapons and stuff which means you get less money for every kill and in order for you to be able to afford buying the best gear every single round you need to either survive and build up you know savings or you need to kill a lot if you die a lot and win you can probably you know, afford buying the best gear again. But the first lap round you lose, you're going to have very little money. If you died, you're going to have very little equipment and the entire thing swings back around, giving a huge advantage for the team that was previously losing. And it creates this sort of a swing mechanic where if someone's starting a win streak, they're probably going good. If they just 
continue their win streak, they're obviously going to stomp. But it creates these specific tactical points during the entire match where there's a real chance that the entire thing will swing the other way. And that creates a sort of a rhythmic, a good rhythm of drama and chances in a in addition to the sort of strategical money economy meta game that's going on on the background and, and the point is that yeah. uh in, in this this counter-strike specific is that the weapons better weapons are better but they are not overpowered like a, you can kill at the same speed with a pistol then that is for free than to the most expensive gun in the game mm-hmm. if you no, hit you it correctly and you play better there can be a tactic you come from a place where they don't expect you so it's not that okay i have this better gun i always have a better gun forever you can i would say easily win you can playing better with shittier guns in a way uh well yeah but the there is a real disparity between the guns the the good yeah yeah, there is sort of mainstream but you can you can be absolutely more really bad (laughs) if you're bad with a good gun and if you're good with a bad gun, yeah, they, uh, they kind of balance in, in that way also. So like, and it's not that much better that you will never be able to win if you play better. You and yeah. Also, an interesting point. And this is not just Counter Strike, but sort of any game where you have um, basically your character becomes better with better equipment, which it can lose and which others can pick up, uh, because in, in games where you where your uh, character somehow inherently grows stronger it means that the enemy can't steal your power but in this case um if you die you lose your equipment and the enemy team can actually steal it so uh, even the enemy team can or rather the losing team or the team with worse weapons can benefit from the uh, opponent team opponent teams better yeah it, it makes small mistakes of the le- it makes the small mistakes of the sort of winning team much more pronounced yeah when you lose one guy you've not only lost one guy you've also given the opponent uh equipment and chances they wouldn't normally have had in the form of a powerful weapon potentially yeah yeah but yeah, your and- point about you know having having the different uh, weapons and stuff being, you know, all of them are viable. Sort of, you know, uh, brings me to another point I actually wanted to talk about, which is uh, uh, what I would perhaps call the balance of options. Like, in any game, if you've got a variety of options to choose from, if it's an RPG where you've got skills you can unlock and talents and abilities or a MOBA, which is basically an RPG on that front, or a yeah. shooter. Uh, even, even like Rainbow Six Siege, where you've got your different operators with different different you know uh, abilities and stuff, and you just choose the one you play the match with. Um, you need to make sure that all of those options are, you know, viable and not you know trash, because then even if the game technically allows all of the players to choose anything they want then and you've got some options that are decidedly worse than others then those options become sort of like game you know system mastery traps that only the noobs are going to pick which makes them lose and in 
you know, in that case, why are those options even a bit, even available? Yeah, yeah and there's the, I would say, statistical balance of a game where you need big number and big data to see this is consistently, consistently worse than everything else. And maybe on the paper it would be really good, but it just doesn't work for some reason. Yeah. So yeah, you yeah. balance on the statistics of that you get from the game that you just need the game to be played a lot until the meta forms. And then you see, or okay, this is too strong. This is too weak because maybe just people play this in a different way that we intended to, and it became too strong or too weak. Yeah. Uh, also, just, you know, a point I saw somewhere on the internet in one of the many videos I watched. Uh, there, the fact, if, if your statistics in a fighting game or a MOBA show that some characters are being played disproportionately more than the other, other characters, that might not necessarily mean that your balance is bad. Because it, it might just mean that the meta, like you said, favors some of the characters at this time. Yeah. And that naturally, as the meta favors those characters, people who play competitively and well are going to be looking at those characters and figuring out their weak points. And uh, perhaps naturally, without you as a developer making any changes, you're going to have another ch character rise up in the usability using usage charts and statistics because people figured out that that character is a very good counter to the one that was previously thought to be overpowered. And then you have this new character replacing the other one. And then there's this like cyclical self-balancing going on where you know the meta and the people playing are going to themselves determine the character that is going to be the most powerful at any given time and then trying to figure out counters for that. And this might also also be um, interestingly a closed loop where there's for example in a in a, um, if you have 100 different characters there might be only five uh, five characters from which one is the starting point and then it ends up in the fifth character and, and if any point you remove one of these somehow, um, I'm not saying remove the character from the game, but, but for some reason uh, one character is not playable at this moment, then the whole uh, meta might collapse in the sense that um, all the characters are actually bad against something else, but they worked very well at this specific sort of situation. Because yeah. there's, there's the original one, which is the most played in this scenario, then there's a counter to that, and then there's a counter to that, and then there's something that somehow relates the relationship between these three, and then there's the fifth one, and then you, for example, if you remove the first one, then the whole meta might collapse and nobody plays any of these uh, again, except yeah. for just novel reasons. Yeah, and and this thing sort of stretches beyond beyond PvP stuff into just you know single player or co-op experiences where it could be. A thing that you can catch in the design phase like for example if you're making a role-playing game where you've got uh several you know utility uh skills for the player like if they can you know maybe the player can pick locks or choosing choose pick locks or pick pockets or whatever and uh, in that case these decisions you give it to the player 
you need to make sure that when designing the game and the you know the stuff that's going to come up in the game they're going to be useful you need to make sure that the utility of the options you present to the player uh, is basically in balance with each other because if some player at character creation goes oh yeah cool i want to be the guy who's really good at picking pockets and then there's no practical use of it whatsoever during the game you might get a few very few small amounts of money for it that's easily outpaced by everything else you encounter then that's a useless crap skill that you probably shouldn't have something you should yeah. never pick basically yeah yeah what well, one uh if I may go quickly to Dungeon and Dragons, just like, okay, uh, you can go very quick because I, uh, I was about to. So, uh, very quick note about D and D is that um, you have four, basically four different kinds of uh, caster characters: bard, sorcerer, wizard, and warlock. And whenever you get to choose new spells, there's always the choice: do you want uh, utility spells? For example, creating illusions, sounding like someone else, or, uh, opening doors, or repairing things. Or do you want powerful combat magic like fireball, lightning strikes, and uh, it's not really a name of a spell, sorry for any D&D nerds listening. But anyway, do you want powerful combat spells which are obviously usable because it's D&D and you encounter goblins and orcs and enemies? Or do you want uh, utility spells which might, which might uh, create extremely interesting role-playing situations or in some other cases help you um, going through with the adventure or the puzzle elements of the campaign? And sort of this really ties into the, both the campaign that you're playing and the game master that's running it. Because if the yeah. game master gives you chances to use these uh, utilities, then it can be extremely satisfying because you can come up with almost infinite number of uses for different, especially if you can combine different spells. But if it's yeah. uh, an, an unexperienced GM or everyone just loves combat, then it's very, it's, it's very unsatisfying to have any illusions or anything because you have a fighter and barbarian and a rogue in the party who are going to slaughter anyone and you're just sort of well i guess i will shoot with my crossbow and deal <laughs> yeah, two damage um, yeah that, that's a also a good point about how role-playing games are actually easier to balance on the utility side than computer games because you've got the gm there it's, oh yeah it's the gm it's the gm's job to make the things the players encounter uh you know the things they want to encounter, right? So it's yeah. balancing basically it's, all the time uh, directly yeah. through playing the game. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Know, yeah. We, but we are going now <laughs> again. <laughs> all right, sure. <laughs> we ended up on the D and D all the time. We we will have to do one one episode about D and D at this point, or rather, role playing uh, paper. Yeah, in general. Yeah. So yeah. for now, since we are over the hour, and that's the time we have to stop. We probably are going to have a third part of this because it's getting more interesting every time we, we meet to speak about these things and maybe focusing on PvP only so we can go more on the eSport side also. And um, so thanks, Arturo, to join again. Sure, yeah. It was thanks, fun. thanks.
And uh, before we stop, I have an announcement again for the next time. That's going to be next Thursday. Nicole is going to be here in Finland, and me, Nicole, and Johan are going to meet physically in the same place and have oh. a live podcast streaming on uh, on Twitch, being completely not serious, probably drinking beers, t- tasting the beers. It's going to be a completely random episode. If you are interested, I don't know if anybody's going to follow that. Doesn't matter. We're going to have fun anyway. <laughs> yeah. But that's going to be happening. Live. Yeah. yeah. It's be happening live. That's, let's see. It's going to be a mess. But until the next serious episode in two weeks, probably. Thanks to get this far. Again, share it with your friends if you can or if you want to. And uh, see you next time. Bye.